Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. When we look around the world, and when we see death all around us, if someone were to ask, why is there death? We, as Christians, understand why there is death. And particularly, going through the book of Genesis, uh, it has been so clear why there is death in the world. We learn from Genesis that God created a, a wonderful world, a perfect world, a world without sin or death. And when he created man, the first uh, man, or the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, they sinned and rebelled against God. And as a result of that sin, death came into the world. Death was God's judgment or God's curse on that rebellion, on, on sin. And as a result now, there is Death in this world, death comes to every human being and this sin-tainted world is also experiencing death and decay. And so according to scripture, as much as death is so common around us, it's not really the normal design of God when God created the world. It is an intrusion. In fact, that's why death in the Bible is called as the enemy or the last enemy. And you say, why is it called an enemy? Because it it creates chaos into God's created order. See, because of sin, there is death. And what does death do? At the point of death, life is sucked out. In fact, for a human being, what happens is where God had created body and soul, at death, that natural makeup of man is divided. The soul and the body gets divided. Death is an enemy because it separates us from God. Death is an enemy because once the person dies, it separates that person from their loved ones. And really, the plight of man was such that because of sin and death, If man were to stay in that state and just die without any hope, without the hope of Christ, man would be eternally separated from God and experience the the turmoil and the damnation and suffering and, and everything else that is associated with being separated from God. 
And really, the, it is the plight of everyone today who rejects the name of Christ. See, because God also promised in the garden that he would send the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent and reverse the curse of sin. He would overcome death and he would remove sin. And the Old Testament saints, therefore, longed for this Messiah, for this seed of the woman to come. And it is through that faith in the Messiah to come that they were saved. And in the fullness of time, of God's time, God's appointed time, God sent this Messiah in the person of Jesus Christ. He came as a human being and he lived a perfect life and then he died on that cross as as payment for the sin of this world. He was taking upon the curse of God for the sin of his people. He took on death. He took on the wrath of God and the judgment of God. And he died on that cross in the place of his people. And yet, because Jesus is the God-man, he's not just simply a man, because he is God as well, he paid the price for the sin of his people, and he rose up on the third day, conquering death, defeating death. Or as the Puritan John Owen said, it was the death of death. In the words of 1 Corinthians 15, he took on the the sting of death, that is sin, because he was treated as, as the most vicious, sinful person on that cross. And as a result, now the sting of death is removed. Sin has been overcome. And death has no power for all those who will put their trust in Jesus Christ. It doesn't have power now to separate that person from fellowship with God. No, Christ has overcome that. And I want to just ask even, you know, right at the start, even before we get into this sermon, is there's... Anyone sitting here who is not a Christian, I want to tell you, friend, that your plight hangs in the balance. God has provided a way by which death can be overcome and you can have fellowship with God through what Jesus has done. And if you will turn to him and submit to him and turn from your sin, then you will be saved and you will not experience the sting of death and be eternally separated from God. But what that also means is, for those of us who are believers, the way we are to think of death is very different. We don't need to be fearful of death because of what Christ has done.
So here's the thing that I want to bring to our attention. You know, as Christians, we often talk about being of living well by faith, of making much of Jesus in the way we live our lives. But what about when we die? When we come close to death, how are we to die? Just turn to Romans chapter 14, verses 7 through 9. Romans chapter 14 and verses 7 through 9. It reads, For none of us, speaking of believers, Christians, for none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. And for to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and of the living. Implication? That as Christians, we must not only think about making much of Christ when we live, but we must be thinking of making much of Christ even when we die. That we would not only live well, but we would die well as well as Christians. You know, I understand that sometimes when a believer dies, it might happen all of a sudden. I understand sometimes a believer uh, might not have all the mental faculties at the time as the time draws near to death. But if by God's grace we do have our mental faculties and we do not die suddenly, then we must make every opportunity to witness to Christ even till our dying breath, even as we draw our last breath. See, because this world, because of sin, will try to suppress the truth about God and try to suppress the truth about eternity and what happens beyond the grave and all of that. And yet one, we have a great and special opportunity, particularly when we near death, to make much of Christ and to make those around us to think about life beyond the grave and their destinies beyond the grave. So it serves as a wonderful opportunity for us to to die well and to witness to Christ even as we draw near to death. In this section that we're going to look at in Genesis 49, death predominantly, it's predominantly about death in this section. About 14 times, the, ver 
the verb bury and the noun grave. They're, they're actually the same word in the Hebrew. It's just a verb form and the noun form for grave and bury. It's used 14 times. And when you think of the structure of the book of Genesis that started with life and life in abundance, it's interesting as we come to the end of the book of Genesis, this idea of death predominates. And what it's showing is that the world is still fallen. That the curse is still present. But in the midst of it all, there's also wonderful hope presented here in this section. There's, you have Jacob here who dies well witnessing to the Lord. And serves an example to us to die well as a believer. There's the wonderful hope of God's promises and that faith in that God will fulfill his promises. And then even beyond that, there's even patterns of God's working as we've seen again and again in the book of Genesis of foreshadowings of what God will do later in the Bible as well. So let's look at this section under two headings. We'll look at Jacob's death in verses 29 through 33 of chapter 49. And then we'll look at Jacob's burial in verses 1 through 14 of chapter 50. And, 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 and let's look at what it means to have hope in our Lord, especially when dying, and remind ourselves of the promises awaiting us beyond the grave. So just in terms of context as to what has happened so far, Jacob has adopted the two sons of Joseph and blessed them. He's declared his prophetic blessings on his 12 sons. And he says to his 12 sons now that he's going to die very soon. And then he commands them to bury him in the ancestral cave at Machpelah. Look at verses 29 and 30. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my father's house in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite. Now that would have been enough, but Jacob takes pains to further emphasize the location he wants to be buried in. And so again he says, In the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess 
as a burying place. Now, if you remember back in Genesis 23, after Sarah died, Abraham went to the Hittites asking for a place to bury his dear wife Sarah. And after lots of negotiations, finally he buys this burial plot and cave at Machpelah from Ephron the Hittite for an exorbitant amount. You know, significantly more than what that small piece of land would have normally cost. And this would be the only piece of land that he owned in all of Canaan. So now, Jacob is specifically detailing all this, almost like saying, here's the title deed. Because back in those days, they didn't have a form with a signature. What they'd say is, oh, this is how the agreement happened. I bought it from this place for this amount of money from that person, from that tribe, and then it's been passed on this way. So he says, this is that cave that I brought from Ephron the Hittite. It belongs to our family and it has been passed down to me. And essentially he's saying it wasn't a gift. Abraham actually paid money and bought it from Ephron. We own that piece of burial plot and that cave in Machpelah. And then on top of that, Jacob also explains that the Previous generation have also been buried there. Look at verse 31. He says, there, that's at the cave, they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There, they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there, I buried Leah. And if that wasn't enough to emphasize the place, he adds one more time, verse 32, the field and the cave that is in it were brought from the Hittites. Now we all know that Jacob dearly loved his wife, Rachel. Right? We've seen that throughout the life of Jacob. And we know that Rachel died unexpectedly giving birth to Benjamin on their way back from Padan Aram. So much so that she was buried in Ephrath or Bethlehem because she couldn't make it to the ancestral cave. So she had to be buried in Bethlehem. Now, here's what I want you to think. If Jacob's insistence about being buried in the cave at Machpelah was just about, you know, I, I want to be buried close to my loved ones. You know, I'm more than sure he would have said, I want to be buried to my dear wife, Rachel. But the fact that he says, bury me in the cave of my father and my grandfather and their wives and in the cave in which Leah is buried shows that this is more than just showing familial love, his desire to be buried in this cave. For Jacob, what the burial plot at Machpelah represented, it represented more, something more than just even his love for his dear wife, late wife, Rachel. So you say, why is this place so important? 
Well, because God had promised to Abraham, to you and to your descendants, I will give this land, Canaan, as an eternal possession. But at this point, the burial plot at Machpelah was the only plot that the family owned. And so by wanting to bury, be buried in this small piece of land that they owned, Jacob is declaring his faith in the Lord God of his fathers. That just like my fathers believed, I too believed that the God who has promised that me and my descendants will one day possess this land. And so he insists that he be buried in that cave. And then verse 33 says, When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Remember, Jacob was dying. And he had mustered up all of his strength and he sat up at the edge of his bed to bless the two sons of Joseph when they came. Remember the crossing over of arms? And then with all of the vigor that he had left, he blessed the 12 sons. And now that he's given the final instructions with regards to where he needs to be buried, he puts his feet back into his bed and he lies down and he breathes his last. And notice what it says, that once he takes his last breath, it says, he was gathered to his people. Now, what does that mean? That he was put in the same cave? No, he, he's not buried as yet. So what does this mean, that he was gathered to his people? Well, it's the idea of life beyond the grave. It's the idea of life after death. In fact, this is exactly what Jacob told his sons just in verse 29 itself. I'm going to be gathered to my people soon. So in other words, when Jacob died, he didn't just cease to exist. He was gathered to his people. The people who died in faith, trusting in the Lord's promises and the Messiah to come. People like Abraham and Sarah. People like Isaac and Rebecca, Leah, and, and if you go back even more, Adam and Eve and Abel and Seth and Noah and Methuselah and Noah and all the rest who had put their faith in the Lord Yahweh. I mean, this is important to understand. You know, when we come to the New Testament, when Jesus was talking to the Sadducees, and Sadducees were uh, some of the teachers as well, and they were ones who didn't believe in the resurrection. And I've talked about this passage before, and it was part of the Bible reading this morning, where then G Jesus tells the Sadducees, you're wrong in thinking that there is no resurrection. And Jesus says in Mark 12, 26 and 27, he says, As for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. 
He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong, he tells the Sadducees. See, Jesus' point is, God did not say to Moses, I was the God of Abraham and Isaac and dead, and Jacob. Now that would be true to say if, if Abraham and Isaac and Jacob ceased to exist. No, he actually says, I am their God, meaning they're still alive and that they will be resurrected one day. So when a believer dies, he doesn't cease to exist. Well, what happens then? Well, what happens when a believer dies is that they leave their earthly body behind. If you look at 2 Corinthians 5, 2 through 4, it compares the earthly body to a tent. So you could say that outer tent is left behind and the soul is, becomes naked, so to speak. You know, sometimes people have this wrong understanding that after death, the soul somehow goes into this unconscious sleep state or something. Yes, passages like 1 Thessalonians 4.14 describe those who've died as fallen asleep. But that's not a reference to the soul being in the unconscious state. When the Bible describes the dead person as fallen asleep, it's a reference to the way the body appears when the person dies. You know, if you've seen a body, it looks like the person is sleeping. And eventually, that body will be raised back up. So that's why it's described a dead person has fallen asleep, particularly in reference to the way the body is. So at death, the outer body is left behind as though asleep, lifeless that way. And the soul without the body then goes into the presence of the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5.8 says, To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Or if you remember, Jesus told a repentant thief on the cross in Luke 23, 40, 43, Today you will be with me in paradise. So there's no unconscious state, there's no, there's no purgatory, there's, there's none of that mumbo-jumbo. This is the great hope of every believer, that the moment we close our eyes in death, we will be gathered immediately together with all the other believers who have died, and we will be in the presence of the Lord Jesus. Think about that for a second. For us as believers, the moment we physically die, we are in the presence of the one that we have known by faith for so long. And now our faith is made sight. And we will see Jesus and be with Jesus, experiencing joy and freedom from sin and a level of consciousness like we've never known before. And if that's not all, 
one day after that, at the resurrection, our souls will be united with our bodies. But not these frail, weak bodies. It'll be bodies 2.0, glorified bodies that will not have the stain of sin, that will never age, that will never grow weak, that will never die. And as body and soul join, just like God intended human beings to be, we in our glorified bodies then will ultimately live in Christ's kingdom for the rest of eternity. Because of Jesus' victory over death, death simply becomes a doorway through which this glorious hope is realized. This is the hope of every believer. You know, I, I, I love lif- listening to things believers have said before they die. Because sometimes they, uh, it always serves as such an encouragement. It has been said that when John Owen, uh, the great Puritan, he was lying on his deathbed and dictating to his secretary, uh, and he was writing a note to his friend. And so he says, I'm still in the land of living. And then he goes, no, stop. Change that and say, I'm yet in the land of the dying, but I hope to soon be in the land of the living. Now, I couldn't find the original source, so I'm not 100% sure if John Owen actually said it. But even if he didn't, it's a great way to look at the life of a believer before and after physical death. Now is life in the land of the dying, and after death is life in the land of the living. Now coming back to Jacob. Jacob obviously didn't have all this revelation that we have. But he did believe in Yahweh, the Lord God of his fathers. He knew that God had promised to send the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent and would reverse the curse of sin and death. He knew the promises of Abraham and that those promises were passed on to him and his descendants. What were the promises? Promises regarding the, that the promised seed would come from their family, that they would be given this promised land of Canaan, and then the blessings to the nations all would come in and through this family. So Jacob knew these things and Jacob believed in God's promise that they would inherit the land of Canaan as an eternal possession. And that one day through this promised seed, sin and death would be overcome. And Jacob himself would be resurrected. And he would be part of the land and there would be no more sin and death like it was at the start of creation. 
And this is what then the authors of Hebrews pick up by saying that the patriarchs were looking forward to a heavenly city having its foundations designed and built by God. You know, ultimately this gets realized when the curse is removed and the new Jerusalem descends down in the new heavens and the new earth. So all in all, when we see Jacob here, Jacob believed that God's promises to him and his descendants would extend beyond the grave. Now here's something I want you to think about. Sure, this was a declaration of great faith by Jacob, but I mean, Jacob could have declared his faith in God and in God's promises while he was dying and just be buried in Egypt. He could have just said, no, I, I, I fully trust in this Lord God and I fully believe in all the promises. Then why make such a big deal about taking his body to Machpelah? No, make that long trip to Canaan. Well, I believe by making such a big deal about where he needs to be buried, Jacob is underlining and highlighting and emphasizing to his sons, where he's saying, I want you to remember, my sons, Egypt is not our home. Canaan is what God has promised to us. I don't want you to forget that, my sons. I don't want you to forget that. And by making such a big deal out of the burial about how he should be buried, Jacob is witnessing to his sons and everyone around about his confidence in the Lord and the promises that God has given to him in a very tangible way than he would if he was simply sitting on that Egyptian bed and said, oh, I believe in God's promises. Now, I think there's an important lesson here for us too as Christians. See, as we near death, now, I'm guessing more than half of you may tune out because you might be thinking, well, I'm not nearing death. But let me tell you, everyone sitting here, young and old, will all die within the next hundred years. That's a given. So whenever that might be, unless the Lord returns before that, we might as well think of how we are to be even as we near death. So as we near death, the lesson here I think is this, that as we near death and we bear witness to the worth of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we are holding on to all the promises in Christ that are yet to be fulfilled. Do you know what it does? When we do that, particularly as we are nearing death, it encourages the faith of other believers around, and it serves as a great testimony to the unbelievers around as well. You know, I remember when I was in India, this is close to 20 years ago, I went with my dad to see one of the elders of the church that my parents were part of. And this man had a form of cancer and he was in a lot of pain and he was in the hospital at the time when we visited him. 
And despite all the pain, this, I still remember that this man would often break out into hymns, singing loudly and joyously in the face of pain, and even as he knew he was nearing death. You know, for a young person like me, it so encouraged my own faith in the Lord Jesus, seeing this man this way as he was nearing death. As Christians, may we all have this mindset that we not only live well, but we die well too. Being a faithful witness to our Lord Jesus, mindful of those around us, even when we're taking our last breath. So Jacob dies in faith and in peace. And that brings us to Jacob's burial in Genesis 50 and verses 1 through 14. 50 and verse 1. It says, Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. Joseph is showing his love now and his affection for his father who has just passed. He's grieving, though not without hope, still trusting in the promises of God. And really, I think what has also happened is is what God had promised Jacob, that your dying eyes will be closed by your beloved son, Joseph. And who is right next to Jacob right now? It's Joseph. I think even this is just such a wonderful reminder that if God is faithful to just small promises like this, he will be faithful to fulfill every other promise of his. Now with Jacob dying, Joseph now has the responsibility of the first son. Remember, he was given the firstborn blessing. And he was still the prince of Egypt. So look at what Joseph does in preparation for the burial. Verses 2 and 3. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father, So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. Now the Egyptians also believed in life after death. And they believe that the body has to be kept intact so that the soul could return to the body one day in the afterlife. So what do they do? They would take great pains to preserve the body according to their beliefs. And how much care was given to preserve the body depended on how much money the family had. The rich in particular would 
embalm the dead bodies or mummify, as we know it, the dead bodies. And this was, this was, a, this was particularly restricted only to the rich people, this embalming or mummifying. Usually what they would do is, once the body is dead, they would take out all the internal organs and they would pack the body with spices and then they would carefully wrap up the body and then finally soak the body in some sort of a preservative. So it was a long, elaborate process and the whole process would take close to 40 days. And because this was a religious ritual as well for the Egyptians, the priests would be the ones who would normally carry out the embalming process. But notice here, Joseph, he doesn't call the priests. He calls his physicians to embalm Jacob's body. So there's no religious connotations whatsoever going on with this embalming. Now here's a question. Why is Joseph getting Jacob's body embalmed? Well, for starters, there were no religious connotations to it, so there was nothing wrong with it. But even more than that, Joseph now has to take Jacob's body on a long journey from Egypt to the land of Canaan. So he would have to preserve Jacob's body if he were to take that body for such a long, long trip and then finally bury him in the cave at Machpelah. And the only way he could do it is by embalming or mummifying Jacob's body. Because otherwise it would break down. It's you know, similar to what happened to Rebekah. And so at this point, it's really God's means of grace, this embalming for Joseph to fulfill his promise that he made to Jacob. And then it's not just the embalming that takes place, there's even a nationwide mourning that takes place for Jacob. And including the days of embalming, it's a total of 70 days of mourning. What's interesting is that scholars say that when a pharaoh died in Egypt, the mourning period was 72 days. This is just two days shy of that. So essentially, Jacob is being treated like royalty because of his connection with Joseph. Joseph, the one who saved Egypt is, and is now the prince of Egypt right now. So, okay, so the whole nation is mourning for Jacob, and that's happened. 70 days have passed, and Jacob's body is mummified. But given all this has taken place, there would have been an expectation that oh, maybe now Jacob is going to be buried in one of the fancy tombs in Egypt. So given there might have been that expectation, Joseph now seeks permission to have Jacob be buried in Canaan. And what's also interesting is that Joseph doesn't go directly and talk to Pharaoh. Why do you think that may be? Well, it might be because at this point, Joseph is still mourning. You know, his, his beard's all grown down and he's disheveled and probably unclean and in sackcloth and whatever else. He couldn't go that way into Pharaoh's presence. And so he makes this request indirectly through the officials of Pharaoh's court. Look at verses 4 and 5. 
when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die. In my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there shall you bury me. Now therefore, let me please go up and bury my father, and then I will return. So Joseph essentially says to Pharaoh, the reason why I would like to bury my father, not in one of the fancy tombs of Egypt, but in this unimpressive ancestral cave in, in Machpelah, is because this was my father's dying wish, and I swore an oath to him. So how is Pharaoh going to respond? Is he going to get angry and harden his heart, thinking, oh, Joseph has, you know, I, I've done so much for Joseph, and I've been honoring his father this way, and how can he just go off from here? Or is Pharaoh going to respond kindly? Look at verses 6 through 9. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there, and there went up with him both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great company. So Pharaoh not only grants Joseph permission to go to Canaan, but he also provides a massive entourage of people for the funeral possession. It was really a national-level funeral procession, fit for royalty. And there were two, three groups of people in this funeral. First, you had those who represented Egypt. There were the elders or the senior dignitaries of the palace. Then you had the elders or the senior dignitaries of the land of Egypt. And then there were also all the servants or all the slaves of Pharaoh. So that's one big group there. Then you have the second group that's made up of Jacob's family. There was all of Joseph's household. There was Joseph's brothers and all of Jacob's household, with the exception of the children and the flocks and the herds. I suppose it'd be difficult to take all the little children to Canaan, all the way down to Canaan, and all the way up to Canaan, and then bring them back. And besides, it would have served as an assurance to Pharaoh as well that they would actually come back to Egypt. So that's the second group. And then you have the last group, which is the military group. You have the chariots and the horsemen, who most likely would have been provided as protection because they were going on such a long journey. 
I mean, this would have been some funeral procession. You know, last year when Queen Elizabeth died, we all witnessed on TV that huge funeral procession. But I would think that Jacob's funeral procession was even more grander than that. In fact, as verse 9 says, you know, it even highlights it was a great company. Oh, it's the same word for army. It was a great army, a great army of people that were there. You know, I would think anyone looking at Jacob's funeral would have been amazed as they looked at this funeral procession. Because think about it. So you have all these, you know, senior dignitaries of Egypt and the palace, you know, all clean and with fine linen and them wearing their gold medallions and whatnot and with all their slaves marching forward. And then at the back you have these horsemen and chariots and whatnot of Egypt at the back. And what's in the middle? A whole bunch of shepherds, unshaven, unclean, with long robes, carrying this little coffin. You know, foreigners who saw this procession would have wondered, I mean, who are these shepherds that this mighty nation of Egypt would accompany them like this? Well, this was God's doing, wasn't it? And what a grace of God it was for Jacob. This man who had so fallen so many times and yet honored God in his dying breath. And look at the grace of God shown to Jacob and his family at this time. Now look what happens next. Verses 10 and 11. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore the place was named Abel Misraim, and it is beyond the Jordan. So when you read this account, it would seem like they didn't enter from the south into the land of Canaan, which was the most direct route. Instead, it would seem that they went down around the Dead Sea and then crossed over the River Jordan into the land of Canaan. Now we're not told why they took this route, but it was the more difficult and more longer route. And finally, when they take this long route and come to the border of Canaan at the threshing floor of Etad, uh, you know, it might be now they're, they're on that land of Canaan. When Jacob's family reaches the land that God has promised to them, and as they're thinking about God's promises, and they're thinking about Jacob and his faith in God's promises, they begin to mourn and wail for seven days, for another seven days. And when the Canaanites 
of that land, the inhabitants of the land, they observed this loud wailing coming from this large army, large company of Egyptians, because on the outside that's all they can see. They renamed this threshing floor of Etad as Abel Misraim, which literally means the riverbed of Egypt. Considering all the, all the crying of Egypt, the whole place was named that way as the riverbed of Egypt. And then in verses 12 through 14, it says, And thus his sons did for him as he commanded them, for his sons carried them to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah, to the east of Memre, with which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. So the sons of Jacob, they buried Jacob in the ancestral cave at Machpelah that they owned in that land, the only possession they had of the land, just like Jacob commanded. And they all returned back to Egypt after that. And this would be the last time the sons of Jacob will be in the land of Canaan. Because they would all die in Egypt for the descendants of Jacob would be in Egypt for the next 400 years. I wonder if they would have thought about their father about God's promises. I, I would think this grand funeral procession, uh, the, the way it was carried out, it would be a reminder for years to come to the family of Jacob that God would indeed bring the family of Jacob back to the land of Canaan one day. Just like the individual Israel that's what Jacob was named, right? Israel, and that's the name that's given here, if you read. Just like the individual Israel was brought back into the land, so many years later, the nation of Israel would be brought back to the land. In fact, you know, there are hints in the text in what has happened point to the fact that this Individual Israel exodus, Jacob exodus to the land of Canaan was actually a mini exodus and pointing to the exodus that will come later in the book after Genesis, which is called Exodus. In fact, there are similarities and also differences, patterns of how God is working this out between the individual Israel's exodus and the nation Israel's exodus. Here in Genesis 50, you have Joseph who asks permission from Pharaoh to go up to Canaan. And Pharaoh gives permission to do so. And there is great prosperity and peace in Egypt during this time. And this was part of God's promise to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you. But then in the next book, in the book of Exodus, you have another Pharaoh who did not know Joseph. And God raises up another man named Moses. And Moses goes and asks that Pharaoh if they could leave to go up 
to the land of Canaan. And Pharaoh says no and hardens his heart. And that Pharaoh mistreats Israel and God brings his curses on Egypt. Again, part of the Abrahamic promise. I will bless those who bless you, but I will curse those who curse you. Then there's points of similarity as well on the Exodus where there's mention of all the slaves of Egypt. In the next Exodus, who are all the slaves of Egypt? The Israelites. Then there's the mention of the great army of Egypt, of the flocks and herds and children and chariots and horsemen, all talking about happening during the Exodus. Those are points of similarity, but the biggest dissimilarity is between the two exoduses was that in this exodus, the chariots and horsemen served to protect the individual Israel as well as the people there. In the next exodus, the chariots and the horsemen are chasing the nation of Israel to kill them. Another point of similarity, you know that route that they take down the Dead Sea and then going up and then crossing the River Jordan? That's the same route the people of Israel will take after the exodus from Egypt. As a nation, through the wilderness warnings, they will go all the way, rather than taking the direct route because of their disobedience and all of that, they will take that route all the way around and finally cross over the River Jordan. So this grand funeral procession, in this, God was highlighting to the sons of Jacob and the future descendants that in more ways than one, I will surely bring you back to the land of Canaan. But I would also say this, while this exodus pointed to the exodus of the nation of Israel, it also points to the greater exodus that will be fulfilled in Christ. In the prophets we read of the prophets talking about when the Messiah will come and restore his people, not just Israel, but all the nations, a time when he will establish his kingdom, that is referred to with exodus terminology as well. In fact, that's why the New Testament authors then pick that up. One example would be First Peter. You know, we went through, we've been through First Peter. Why does Peter talk about Christians being called as exiles and sojourners? Where he says, this world is not our home. We're still going home to the promised land. Where does he get that from? From the prophets. Because there's a greater exodus happening through Jesus. Where Jesus finally then will return and establish his kingdom and we will all be home. And so really this, this exodus of Jacob or individual Israel, where Jacob is even being honored like a king by the Egyptians, with a shadow or foreshadow, of the ultimate son of Jacob who will be hailed as king. And as the prophets will say, it won't be just Egypt, 
But all the nations will come to Zion and give honor and praise to King Egypt, to King Jesus, who has brought his people back to himself. And what a day that will be, and for the rest of eternity, when King Jesus will come and make everything right, and there's peace and prosperity. And everything will be under his rule. So in closing, I want to ask you this. Are you prepared to die? Are you prepared to die? I mean, we prepare for so many things. I want to ask you, are you prepared to die? If you're not a Christian, friend, I want to tell you, whether you are young or old, you could die very soon. And what's going to happen to you after that? Will you be eternally separated from God? because you have rejected Christ and experienced the full damnation and judgment of God? Or will you live under the grace and mercy of the Lord under the reign of King Jesus? Friend, if you want to know more about who Jesus is and what it means to follow him, please come and talk to me. And for those of us who are Christians, I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, once again, that in our living and in our dying, that we would make much of Christ our only hope. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the privilege that we have to be called out of the slavery of sin from the domain of darkness into your marvelous light, into the kingdom of light. We recognize that we are still sojourners in this world. This world is not our home. That Christ is leading that great exodus into our promised land. And we long for that day. But until Christ returns, Lord, we ask that you would help us by your grace. Please help us to live well and help us to make much of Christ. And even as we draw near to death, we would also make much of Christ, witnessing to him, encouraging the rest of the believers and being a witness to the unbelieving world. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.